Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am in Beijing, China. Also joining us on this episode... Anna Fifield of the Washington Post, who is in uh, Tokyo, Japan, uh, and Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who is in Washington, D.C., as is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Uh, and as we you know, go around the world and talk about the big trends, um, uh, obviously, as we discussed in the last episode, a lot of the focus is on North Korea. But North Korea's a piece of the puzzle. It's a dramatic situation. Obviously, the prospect of nuclear war drew it into everybody's focus. But North Korea is a small country with a tiny economy, um, some regional impact, a desire to be seen as a global player. Um, But of much greater consequence, of course, is the rise of China um, as a power. And the United States doesn't really seem to know how to respond to that rise, um, except that periodically Donald Trump will say that Xi Jinping is his friend, his best friend. Donald Trump said that his visit to Beijing, China was the best reception any other leader had ever gotten in China in the 5,000 year history of China. He didn't say 5,000 years because I don't think he knows that it's 5,000 years, but (laughs) He, he he said he had the best reception. Ivanka Trump is getting trademarks. Uh, 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 and, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of sort of top level niceness. And then below that, a lot of a lot of concerns. Um, and as you look at this, as you as you cover this and as you get more and more into the China side issues, do you think anybody any country in in the region right now uh, has a clear eye to how they're going to handle this newly assertive China that is willing to accept its role as a global uh, leader as one of the two great powers of the world? I mean, I think everybody in the region is kind of calibrating, especially like former US allies or whatever, like trying to figure out how they get along, how to avoid antagonizing China without entirely severing relations with the United States. So in recently I was in Cambodia and I was in Sihanoukville there, this port city, and it was incredible to see what had happened there. So, you know, Cambodia, the uh, Hun Sen is one of the few strong men in Southeast Asia that uh, Donald Trump has not invited into the White House or not uh, gone to, to meet there. But he has really kind of um, become... Uh, moved a lot more closely into Hun Sen's orbit as a... Res- uh, sorry, into Xi Jinping's orbit as a result of this... Um, 
I'm sorry, can we just stop? There's a huge cockroach that's running across my living room and I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> I just have... Get, get Jude to uh, stamp on it. It's, it's massive and I can't concentrate. <laughs> sorry. I'm, re- I'm really sorry. This is like the one thing. <laughs> As you talk about strongmen. <laughs> I'm about to scream. I'm going to have to go into a different room so that I can't see it. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, these are the people who are covering the tensest, biggest (laughs) of our time. I mean, I'll go to North Korea, but, you know, give me a cockroach and I thank you. Sometimes there are there are crises that demand our immediate attention. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that that's, you know, worth noting. And like how many times have you been in North Korea? I've been to North Korea seven times to Pyongyang. I've been 12 in total to different regions around the place. But, uh, yeah, well, but I'm uh, not welcome these days. I appear to be on a blacklist, uh, you know, and so I have not been allowed in recently. But, you know, from my perspective, going to North Korea is not that fruitful. I can get much better information by going to China or to Thailand to meet defectors who are just escaping. Um, and so I can get much fresher real information from them. Yeah, by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, one of my most valued possessions is a North Korean pencil case that was given <laughs> to me once by Anna Fifield, who combs the borders of North Korea for good swag, North Korean swag. I tell uh, you, that's one thing that suffered during this clampdown. You can't get good swag on the Chinese-North Korean border anymore. There are no Kim Jong-un watches or pencil cases to be had, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, but you know who's you, you know who's picked up the slack there? Who? The, the president of the United States making his <laughs> coins. And have you got one, David? No, I really wish I have one. Uh, you know, Ed or Rosa, did you manage to get your hands on one of those coins? I, I I'm I'm minting some right now for <laughs> state radio listeners. Yeah, I went, don't want, the North Koreans are probably counterfeiting them as we speak. They'll be available. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. I haven't. No, that's a it's a it's 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 a real pity. So, um, you were in the middle of a story there, Anna, before yeah. the cockroach attacked you about yeah. Cambodia. I mean, yeah, was it Cambodia? Yeah. Yes. Are, are, okay. are you are you okay, Anna? Is the cockroach? I'm telling you, it was the size of a rat. It was is it, massive. <laughs> is it still there? <laughs> no, I've moved to a different room, so I can't oh, see it. very wise. It'll yeah, be sitting on the probably, couch. You'll, you'll probably just yeah. have to close that room off permanently. Yeah. That When I go <laughs> back into the living room, that, that cockroach is going to be sitting on my couch watching the New York Times documentary. I'm telling you. <laughs> just what I was doing. Yes, as I was saying, I was recently in uh, Cambodia and it really, the the contrast there was, well, the way that these Southeast Asian nations are approaching this was just like gobsmacking to me. There is like basically the Chinese are occupying these, uh, you know, cities in in Cambodia now, port areas, they've bought up everything, the locals have been forced out, you know, tourists are staying away. And it's just a no-brainer for them. Chinese will pour in this much-needed investment, give them all this money with none of the strings attached that uh, that the U.S. has previously asked for, things like human rights and that kind of pesky stuff. So you can see more and more of these countries kind of making this easy choice to go, to go with China. Well, you know, Ed, one of the things that I've been, you know, noticed in the news was... Uh, one of our favorite world leaders, um, President Duterte of the Philippines, 
was making some comments about China in the South China Sea. And he said, well, you know, if the Chinese, you know, start, uh, 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 you know, grabbing resources in this part of the world, it'll mean war, war, I tell you. And, you know, I, I look at this and I just think, no, it won't. You know, no one's going to, I mean, China's going to do what it wants to do in the South China Sea. China's going to do what it wants to do pretty much everywhere. Um, people can complain, and the United States, as it did the other day, can go and send a couple of, you know, a, a, you know, guided missile cruiser or something like that, by, you know, by, you know, in the general vicinities of these islands. But this is, you know, this is the sort of Puerto Rico of China. You know, it's kind of nearby. It's going to be their sphere of influence, and who's going to stop them? Well, that's a very good, very good question. The um... Uh, you know, back in 1996, when um, China was shelling Taiwan, Clinton sent in the Seventh Fleet. The battle, the battle group um, interposed uh, the fleet between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan, and that pretty much ended the crisis because China didn't have any uh, military comeback. Um, now, in an equivalent situation, it would be quite different because China's got the capacity to sink an aircraft carrier. And so the risk of the United States getting into a hot situation in the South China Sea, whether it's, you know, in between the Philippines and Mischief Reef or in between China and the Paracel Islands, whatever it might be, um, the risk is too great. So the uh, the carrier groups have to operate from a much greater, safer distance. That limits the range of American um, jets. Um, and it just uh, makes a parity out of the military situation in the region, which changes everything. Uh, you know, so we, we, we talk in futuristic terms about America losing its military um, unparalleled military dominance, but it already has. Uh, it's a present tense situation um, in that respect, that the calculations and trade-offs that have to be made between China and the US when it comes to freedom of navigation, um, naval patrols, we just in the last two, three days had one of those uh, two, two US ships um, uh, um, sailed within 12 nautical miles of one of the Chinese um, island chains, or one of the Chinese, sorry, claimed island chains, and the Chinese attempted to intimidate them out of the out of the region. Uh, we, we're in a new we're in a new world where these kinds of calculations, which used to be open and shut and asymmetric, are now becoming very symmetric, and that's deeply troubling because the scope for misunderstanding the scope for something that the Hainan Island um, uh, event in the early months of the Bush administration where a US spy plane was forced down, um, that, that, that then becomes multiply more dangerous in this world. So uh, yes, uh, we're, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're in a new age in, in which China is assertive, got a lot more capabilities, and we have an American administration that's not really, not really got a game plan as to how to deal with this. Yeah, I, I think, by the way, it goes beyond the administration. I would say that the American policy community is not really uh, ready for this, and they're falling onto old, old, you know, constructions like you know, this is a new Cold War, which it is not because it's not zero sum as it was with the Russians. Uh, and we're totally interdependent on the Chinese or many heavily interdependent on the Chinese. 
and and we just don't have, you know, this kind of uh, doctrinal foundation to say, here's what the interdependence means for us. Here's what we want to balance. Here's how we characterize this country that's not an enemy, but sometimes is a rival and is sometimes uh, an important collaborator. Uh, here's what our strategy is in the region. Here's what our strategy is in the world. But, you know, Rosa, you said something in the last episode, which I thought was kind of interesting about how the world might view America's withdrawal and might see it as a positive thing. Mightn't you also say the same thing that the most populous country in the world um, really ought to be, you know, sort of uh, punching at a higher weight than it has been in the past and that it's probably useful to have counterbalances to the United States? Sure. I mean, if, again, if we look at things not from a, uh, an American perspective or even a Western perspective, uh, China has, you know, what is it, quarter roughly of the world's population. Um, it's a rising country. It's a really interesting country. It's got all kinds of good things going on as well as some creepy things going on. And it's not, you know, number one, I think, I think if, if you are if you're thinking about things from the perspective of a non-Western person uh, 20 years from now, it's not particularly obvious that you're better off with a U.S.-dominated global order than with a Chinese-dominated global order. Um, you know, if you're American, you're probably worse off with a Chinese-dominated global order. But, but you know, most of the world, surprisingly enough, uh, is not American. Um, you know, the, we don't know which direction China will go in on all sorts of key things. Obviously, China is repressive in all kinds of ways, but equally, uh, it's been a, a hub of all sorts of innovation, including cultural innovation. Um, and I, there's no, I, I can see no, in, no inherent reason to think that 50 years in the future that the world is worse off uh, with a Chinese uh, uh, superpower than with a U.S. superpower. Um, well, you know, we again, we don't we don't really know where this is going to go. But you know, Anna, for all you know, all of human history except for the past 150 or so years, China was the largest economy in the world. Now, China was fragmented for some of that period. Then, you know, this is a kind of a general statement as an aggregation of the places we now know as, of as China. Um, uh, but really, China not having as big a role uh, is kind of the aberration. And, and having a bigger role is an important thing. But also having billion people represented on the global stage, uh, just as, as I think we'll be able to make the case for India sometime soon, uh, suggests, you know, it's, it's really time to hit the reset button on what the global order looks like. The interesting thing is that the Chinese are actually thinking about that and beginning to move a little bit in that direction. And the United States really isn't, except to the extent that we say we don't want to really be as invested in the international system as we were. Yeah, David, I don't know how many days you've been in Beijing for, but I think you've, the Chinese have really gotten to you there. I mean, this is exactly what Xi Jinping <laughs> wants, right? You know, this is what he he says that this is 
the you know this is an aberration right now he is restoring china to its rightful place in the world and you know that it should be maybe he, he wouldn't say global superpower but that his kind of effort to do this you know whether it's in the south china sea whether it's launching you know lunar rovers to the dark side of the moon all of this stuff is about asserting China's place in the natural order of things. So, I mean, who knows where China will be in 50 years' time? I mean, Xi Jinping still won't still be there. We know that much. But, uh, you know, I think that he is trying to position China to be to occupy this role once again. Well, you know, I, I have to say, first of all, I, I know you're joking. But, you know, I've been coming <laughs> to China for 30 years. In fact, the first trip I made to China was in the run-up to Tiananmen Square in 1989, and I was here through that whole period, and then in the government, the Clinton administration, and have been coming for a long time ever since. And China is a big, complicated country, and it's a mixed bag, and there's some things going on here that are very, very worrisome, and there's some things going on here that are very, very exciting. Um, uh, and, you know, it would be tempting to say, as is true in the U.S., but there's some things that are going on here that are worse than what's going on in the U.S. Um, but, 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 but having said that, uh, I'm just speaking more generally that in terms of geopolitics, you know, we've been working with the same sort of, you know, major power roster for 75 years, and it's the wrong roster, and, and, you know, the interesting thing is that we were sort of the authors of what that looked like in the wake of World War II when we were the dominant power and we were the only one unscathed and 50% of all trade went through the United States. Um, but now we're pulling away and they're stepping up. And by, by default, Ed, they're gonna necessarily play a bigger role in defining what the shape of international institutions look like uh, and what the shape of sort of the you know, sort of international power structure looks like, then we will, uh, un unless we decide that we want to remedy it, and then we have some decent ideas for doing that. Yes, I think I think that's quite right. I, I mean, I would take some um, dispute with with the idea that you and that you and Rosa, I, I think, is suggesting that the world would be indifferent to which of them is the top top dog. You know, I, I think you mentioned India, David. India would, even though it's not a formal formal ally of the United States, prefer an open world in which um, China is second dog to um, to the United States, and preferably at some point India is. Um, Singapore would prefer Pax Americana to continue. Australia would. I'm pretty sure Japan would too. Um, I, I think America is, you know, a very different kind of power. To the to to the Chinese, uh, the Chinese, you know, traditionally have this middle kingdom um, uh, sort of idea of themselves that that everyone else is really a tributary. They don't colonize. They don't sort of directly occupy, uh, but others come to take the rules from them. Uh, United States has a very different one. So I mean, the Chinese feel that history is now reverting to its default position, which is China is a middle kingdom. The United States has a very different teleology, if you like, which is that there's this arc of history that continues to sort of bend towards progress. America is always at the cutting edge of that arc, and others are following it. Uh, they're two very, very different sort of ideas of, of the way the world should be. But I think that the American one 
is is one that has helped create the uh, prosperity and rise of many countries that would rather not see it go. I think they do fear China uh, and uh, and would rather see America get back into its better self. Uh, I was, as I mentioned um, in an earlier podcast in Singapore recently, uh, the Singaporeans, you know, probably uh, are more worried by this than anybody. Uh, and I, I think I probably already told you this, but their their, their heads are already with China. Um, uh, they they see China playing a more skillful game here, particularly in terms of this Belt Road Initiative uh, and the kinds of investments it's making um, in Asia, in South Asia, Central Asia, Africa, Eurasia, even Latin America, than the United States. But their hearts. Um, uh, uh, with the system of Pax Americana, without which Singapore would not be Singapore. It would not have thrived as a small city-state based on trade, based on an open global economy. Um, mostly um, Singapore, Singapore's elite is Western and US-educated. Uh, uh, their heart is still with that system, but their head is increasingly with China because China's playing the game better. So, Rosa, this brings up a really interesting question. What do you think, Rosa, Donald Trump thinks of the Pax America? I think Donald Trump, I think Donald Trump thinks it's a skin condition. Um, yes. but, but, you know, I, I, of course I take Ed's point, but I, I wonder if you're not asking people in Singapore and you're not asking people in Europe, if instead you're asking your average Kenyan or Nigerian or Botswanan or, for that matter, Peruvian, I wonder if you get a very different answer in terms of whether the future looks Chinese-dominated in a way that is is positive uh, versus negative. It's it's I you know, needless to say, there are large swathes of the world which do not view the United States as a visionary leader uh, fostering openness reform, democracy, and so forth. There are large swathes of the world in which the U.S. is mistrusted, uh, viewed as an actor that has pursued its selfish interests, often at the expense of indigenous populations, uh, propped up corrupt elites for its own convenience and so forth. You know, it's not that I imagine for one moment that China is necessarily different, but in terms of China, partly partly because China has taken a back seat in global affairs for the last uh, 150 years, not uh, you know not in part because of U.S. actions itself, right? British and U.S. actions that that prevented China from emerging into a different kind of role in a more in a more natural way. Uh, you know, if you People's image in much of the developing world of China is either non-existent because they don't know much about it because China hasn't been a player until quite recently, or it's positive because China is pouring money into Africa. It's pouring money into all kinds of places that the U.S. has more or less abandoned. Uh, so, so I'm not I'm not sure that I, I mean there's there's no way to know, and I don't know if there's any worthwhile useful poll data on global images of China uh, that's recent enough to be useful here. But but I'm. it's not obvious to me that from the perspective of much of the world, including particularly the global South, uh, that the rise of China and the decline of the United States is necessarily going to be viewed as anything other than, yeah, it's about time and this is probably going to be good for us. Well, you know, 
Uh, Anna, there's another dimension of this because we tend to talk about these things politically and and you know in terms of the political cloud of these states and in terms of the political systems in these parts of the world. And 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 clearly there are many reasons why many people might prefer the U.S. to continue to play an active role, although the U.S. is ambivalent about this right now. But one of the reasons that a lot of these parts of the global south are perfectly open to China playing a leading role is that China is starting to spend money and China has grown and China is willing to build infrastructure and China is willing to provide aid without burdening them with all sorts of expectations of better behavior in the way that the United States does. And so, you know, China can lead um, in ways that don't really have anything to do with its political outlook or its political system. Um, uh, and 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 be embraced. And, you know, the whole Belt and Road Initiative, um, uh, which obviously has important strategic and goals for China and economic goals for China, very self-interested initiative, as all initiatives are of countries, um, uh, is one that brings a lot of benefits to a lot of these places. And, you know, you, you, you start seeing things that that would have seemed completely impossible. You know, Ed, Ed made a reference to the 1996 issue in the Straits of Taiwan. Um, and and that was a very, very different China. We now have trains running from China to the port of Antwerp on a regular basis. It's a this is a very, very different um, kind of power that China is projecting as well. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as Donald Trump has been busy making America great again and kind of like pulling back from the world, China has been more than happy to move into this vacuum. Though, I mean, to be fair, a lot of this did precede him, but it's been in uh, China. It's only been a boon for China to have this trend accelerate under Trump. But yeah, you see places like I mentioned before, Sihanoukville in Cambodia desperately needed money to develop. And in comes China just pouring, uh, you know, all of this investment in there. It's absolutely in China's self-interest to be developing deep water ports and all of these kinds of things and spreading its tentacles out through the world, but it's also in Cambodia's interest. You know, they don't have the money to build the plumbing and repair the roads and do all these things that come along with this kind of development. Um, so it's very easy at a governmental level there for them to say yes, you know, to welcome China with open arms. But the thing that struck me on this recent reporting trip was just the kind of resentment towards China there. And this is, you know, something I hear in Japan even as well. But there in, in Cambodia, people were really unhappy with the way China was doing this, the coming in and, you know, all of the lowly, dirty, dangerous jobs go to the locals and the well-paid jobs go to the Chinese people who are brought in. But the same thing here, in, even in, you know, rich Japan, they desperately want Chinese tourists, but they um, they don't like their you know lack of Japanese manners when they come. So there is a kind of resentment in the way that China is doing this. Uh, you know, tourism is obviously different from infrastructure investment, but it is just this kind of begrudging acceptance that you have to accept China because it is this huge uh, you know economic power you cannot resist. Yeah, can I can I can I chime in here? And so sure. two things. One, I'd like to congratulate a a Anna on the use of the word boon. I think that's an excellent word. I haven't heard the <laughs> word the word boon in a long time. But the the the, uh, the more serious point I wanted to make is, in, you know, if you look at the Belt Road Initiative and you compare it and contrast it to the Marshall Plan, um, the Marshall Plan did give ownership. 
to the countries receiving American aid of how that aid was spent. Uh, uh, France, Germany, and others. It also, you know, went to uh, the powers that America had defeated. This is not something that normally happens in history, uh, that, that America was rebuilding powers that it had defeated. Now, for, obviously, because it was looking to the next possible war um, with the Soviet Union. Uh, but in, in terms of how the Belt Road Initiative is being conducted, they're incredibly in, impressive infrastructure projects. This is the only game in town. Uh, all, all the points um, you know, that, that others have made, in, 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 all of you have made it absolutely correct. Uh, but it, it's not being done in a very sophisticated way politically, as Anna's just, just outlined. The, 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 there's a lot of pump priming for Chinese state-owned enterprises there um, that have saturated their investment in the Chinese market and you know, are looking to uh, basically spend their surplus in all, all kinds of places, in all kinds of continents, um, without much regard to financial return. And a lot of these um, are in the forms of loans to the countries that are getting those projects. Um, you know, Venezuela, for example, has $60 billion of debt to China. $60 billion. Wow. Um, Kenya has tens of billions, um, because partly because of this Nairobi-Mombasa railway. And if those countries default on those loans, that's a Chinese sovereign credit risk. Um, so, because these are non-recourse loans. So, uh, you know, there, there are risks there for China financially, as well as um, politically, in terms of how, how the host countries are responding. Well, it's true. Although, you know, I think there's a, you know, and there's a all you know, these giant kind of debt problems are always a double-edged sword. Um, and to the extent to which so many countries are dependent on China, um, uh, there is a big incentive for people to keep the China engine going, you know. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of debt in China that depends on continued growth um, uh, in China, and, and many people think that it's been underestimated and, and that it's a potential real risk um, for continued um, uh, Chinese growth. Um, but I, I have to, you know, sort of come back, Rosa, to the point that uh, as, we, as we look at this, we look at a major power with major clout, that may not have a great political message to deliver at the moment, but has a, a very powerful and compelling economic one that is reaching out all over the world, has started building military bases, running military exercises, extending its, its influence, engaging in international institutions, playing a leading role in all of these places. Um, and you have the United States that's in deep retreat, doesn't know you know, even the, the the Trump administration doesn't even know how to handle it. You know, should we levy sanctions? Should we not levy sanctions? Should we cut a deal? One of the things that became clear in just the past few days is that they said, well, let we let's cut a you know let's negotiate a trade arrangement with China where they buy a lot more American products. Um, and the consequence of 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 that deal, should it ever be struck, is that um, the 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 Chinese will stop buying the products from other U.S. allies like the Australians and the Europeans. And so, you know, on the one hand, we're punishing them. On the other hand, the way we're solving our problems with them is punishing other people. 
you know, we don't seem to know how we want to treat them strategically. Right now, it seems to me, this is the great strategic muddle on the global stage for the United States, which is saying something because there seem to be so many. Well, and, and, you know, the Obama administration, of course, recognized uh, China as the source of the great strategic model. Um, you know, the Obama administration saw very clearly the dynamics that we've been talking about uh, and, and felt acute anxiety about, uh, you know, how do we simultaneously recognize that, that China is, is not an enemy. Um, it's a really important player. Uh, there are all kinds of common interests the United States has with China, and yet at the same time recognize that that China is not acting necessarily in ways that are in the U.S.'s interests, that it's not inevitable that the future of China and China's role in the world is a positive one as opposed to a negative one. You know, so the Obama administration responded with a giant muddle in which the sort of strategic question mark was very clear, I think, to, to, to the Obama administration, the sense of, we, you know, if we need to stop being so fixated on the Middle East and stop being so embroiled in conflicts in the Middle East, because the big relationship, uh, the big player in the future uh, is going to be China. And we need to we need to pivot. We need to rebalance. We need to whatever whatever the heck they decided to call it in the end. Um, what what happened, of course, was that despite a lot of earnest uh, energy going into thinking about this strategic problem, the Obama administration was neither able in the end to come up with a a particularly coherent uh, solution, nor was it able to to implement um, the sort of mini micro solutions it came up with. I think what has happened now under Trump is that is that a you know, an an earnest effort to try to grapple with this strategic problem has been replaced by a haphazard, often bad faith and and often influenced by corrupt considerations uh, effort to just, you know, do whatever is convenient in the short run. And, and you've got all these competing players within the Trump administration, uh, ranging from the president himself to to uh, the, the varying perspectives of many of his top advisors. And so we've replaced we've replaced a, a a serious but failing effort to address this with an unserious uh, effort. Uh, you know, we're, we're not even really trying anymore. We're just flailing around more or less at random and trademarking Ivanka Trump's products. Well, that's, you know, a huge contribution. Ivanka Trump is in many ways the Leonardo da Vinci of our time. I mean, if you think about it, <laughs> or, or at least, you know, maybe she's the Goethe of our time because he served in the government while he was writing things like Faust. Uh, she is serving in the government while she's creating beauty and luxury for the people of the world, including the people of China, uh, having done a deal with the devil, much like Faust. So maybe she's one up on him. Uh, it's it's really it's really quite something. Um Anna, does it ever make you want to go home to New Zealand? Oh, I tell you what, these days New Zealand is looking very tempting. I mean, partly because of the clean skies, which you have not been uh, enjoying there. But um, yeah, no nuclear weapons. I would like no to break from weapon. that right now. And a, and a next, next generation leader, you have a 38-year-old prime minister. Pregnant, about to give birth, that's right, wearing a Māori cloak into Buckingham Palace, standing up to our colonial occupiers. So, yeah, I mean, 
But I have to confess, when I read Evan Osnes' excellent piece in The New Yorker about, you know, rich people taking off to New Zealand, it did make me think maybe they were on to something. They were. And, and, and Ed, do you want to respond to the colonial occupier's line? I mean, <laughs> to stand up for the, for the royal family here? I, 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 I will never forget um, when I was in my teens, the Queen making a visit to New Zealand and the Maoris as a show of disrespect, bearing their behinds uh, and uh, <laughs> turning their backs to the Queen and bearing their behinds. And a spitting image, you know, remember the um, satirical show on, on, on British television, spitting image having a whole sketch yeah. about the Queen saying these bottoms are a wonderful thing. Why can't we have <laughs> bottoms in Britain? And, and her husband's saying, but what do you sit on? And she says, the throne. And it just goes on like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that explains everything, uh, really. Thank I you. Think. Thank you. <laughs> A cost-benefit political analysis of the whole situation. Yeah, that's right. It, it does, and 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 frankly, you know, we could blame blame the British for the opium wars and setting back China, you know, um, and you know perhaps the the the, the you know subsequent reaction to the West. Um, uh, yeah, let's blame it all on Britain. Rosa, would you agree? Should we blame it all on on Britain? I think we should blame it specifically on Ed. <laughs> uh, it's quite a weight on my shoulders, but I'm prepared to carry it. Well, it's, it's okay. Is there any truth to the rumor, Ed, that you're directly descended from the fictional sheriff of Nottingham? Uh, none whatsoever. <laughs> Robin Hood is a close relative, though. Yes, exactly. Well, if you're going to pick fictional relatives, that's that's where I would go. <laughs> Folks, as you, as you think it beats uh, the white man's burden? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Um, well, folks, as you can see, we've come to another uh, uh, end of another episode of Deep State Radio in our in our classic style of covering the world's most important things and Anna Fifield's cockroach. And I do want to return to that before we go. Anna, what is the status of your cockroach? I have not seen it again, which is just as worrying as actually seeing it, I think. Are you no, back I'm in that room, Anna, or have I, you just I, moved out of your apartment? No, I did come back to this room, so I'm looking at my yoga mat. I think it might be. <laughs> there will be no yoga yeah. tomorrow. Would, would I be safe in, in predicting that you will move out of this apartment now as a result? Well, I'm moving out anyway. I'm moving to Beijing. It's all gravitating towards Beijing. Well, they don't have any cockroaches in Beijing, so you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, fuel. Thank you, Rosa. Exactly. Just make well, make we sure the packers don't pack the cockroach. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, exactly. Important. Well, well, you know, folks. You know, as soon as you tune out from this episode, you should read all of these recent articles on the importance and promise of cockroach milk. Oh, <laughs> which no. is considered, which is considered to be potentially the superfood of tomorrow. I kid you not. <laughs> David, how do you find up? the time to keep up on all these things? Well, you know, I just do, and I'm just telling you, it's very important. And Anna doesn't realize the incredible boon she has right there. Wait, but I, I, okay, I have a question. Cockroach milk. Do you make cockroaches... it by grinding cockroaches like almonds, or do you milk the cockroach? I was pretty yeah, sure they you... were not mammals. That's what I learned in school. Yeah, no, and they you can't grab their tiny nipples and milk them. I don't think that's possible. Um, uh, but, <laughs> I don't know that much I... about cockroaches. No, I think it's made from grinding them up, much in the way that almond milk is made from grinding almonds. No, no, I, I can give you this information because I'm reading this terrible article, and it says 
It is cockroach postnatal fluid secreted from the critters in the form of crystals to nourish its plasmids. But it can be enjoyed by humans too. I bet Gwyneth Paltrow drinks cockroach milk. Here's the good news. The cockroaches die in the process of extracting the fluid. Well, that is that is good news, and and it's high in protein, and it's good for the world, and there's a lot of cockroaches, and they're not going anywhere. And Anna Fifield was at the cutting edge of everything, has already started her herd, her own her own herd of cockroach dairy. Um, dairy I'm moving back to New Zealand to be a cockroach farmer. Breaking yeah. news. Oh, okay, folks, follow in Anna's footsteps. That's I just tell you that that's what I always try to do in my life. Uh, thank you, Anna. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, cockroaches everywhere. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, thank, thank, thank you, Deep State Radio nerds. And uh, we'll uh, see you again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.